Welcome to Maximum Mom with Elise Buey, where you'll hear from women who are navigating the same messy journey as you. Lawyering, entrepreneurship, and mothering, what a trifecta. We're here to share tips, resources, wins, losses, and encouragement for moms who are raising a family while building a law firm. So you feel less alone in your journey toward a fulfilling career and being the best mom you can be. Welcome everybody to the Maximum Mom Monday. I am so excited today to have who I refer to, though I didn't ask her in advance, the Beyonce of modern law practice. I just think Carolyn has literally been such a trailblazer in for women, for men, for everybody who wanted to start their own practice. And I, in particular, looked to Carolyn for years. I feel like it's been like 20 years now. We'll have to ask ask her when she yes. started my shingle i mean because i okay yeah because it feels like it's been close to 20 mm-hmm. years that i've been following her and just voraciously reading everything she writes and when i read solo by choice i mean it revolutionized my thinking of what my life had to look like. And I think so many people, especially when you're working in a large law firm or even a medium law firm, it, it can be a grind, you know, and sometimes it's just not all that you thought. You, you go to law school, borrow hundreds of thousands of dollars, and then you find yourself in a job that just doesn't necessarily feel like what you signed up for. And when I read Solo by Choice, I was just blown away. And it is really changed how I think about the law. And I do have to say one other thing. When I think about the more I've gotten into this, like thinking about this podcast and thinking about women, women who are lawyers and women who are lawyers and entrepreneurs, I mean, we are the very definition of badass. I mean, being able to pull (laughs) things off. I mean, it's like seriously wild. And I think of it, you know, I'm a good New Orleans girl. I think of everything in terms of a gumbo and it is like the <laughs> ultimate in gumbo i mean we're putting our crab meat in there we got our andouille sausage and we got our chicken and we're throwing it all together and we're making this amazing meal but i mean it's messy you know yes. <laughs> like, there's nothing straightforward about it so carolyn i am just so excited to have you with us today and i know everyone listening is even probably more excited than i am because they maybe have not read everything you've written for mm-hmm. the last 20 years <laughs> And so getting to know you is a huge treat for our audience. Tell us about your journey. I mean, how in the world did you become the Beyonce of modern law firms? So I I started, first I started my own firm. I had been working, I worked in government first, and then I was at a large firm for about three years. I was doing energy work. I wasn't getting a lot of trial work and it just wasn't that interesting. And I was, I I guess, as a result, because I wasn't interested in, I probably wasn't doing my best work. And so I was told that I wasn't on the partnership track and I was asked to leave. And I started thinking about what my options were. And I looked at some other firms and I know I I went on some interviews and it was just, it was just more of the same, you know, talking about these boring rate cases and saving like a penny for each customer on. And it just, so, and I had also applied to some government jobs. Those didn't really go anywhere. So I thought I had always sort of in the back of my mind wanted to start a firm. And so I thought, you know, now is as good a time as any. And I figured that at the very least, I could get myself more experience. I could get courtroom experience by taking court appointed criminal cases. 
and also learn about other practice areas in case I decided to make a switch. And so I went and I started and what I discovered was that the energy work that I didn't like doing was actually a very valuable asset because it at least enabled me to do contract work for other attorneys or to offer my services to smaller clients who were kind of startups in that space, which you know I'd never heard about when I was at my own firm. And so I stayed, I stuck more closely to energy than I had anticipated, but I also started handling other cases. And I remember when I started, I really, I felt like a kid in a candy store. Doing anything back then was so exciting. I mean, and in those days, this was in, I don't like to age myself or say, this is how they did it in the olden days you know, because it, it, it isn't relevant today, people's experiences today, but just for the purposes of reminiscing and giving the background, I remember going to a court to, to the DC circuit to, to file a petition. I had to go to the court because I couldn't afford a messenger. And it was like a whole day affair, just getting the document filed, they would stamp it and leaving. But it was just, I felt like I was free racing up and down the streets of Washington, DC, being this, this real, a real lawyer. So it was, it was very exciting. And I had my firm for a while. And I guess three years into my firm, before I had my first daughter, I wrote an article for the Washington Legal Times about how I started my law firm. And it was basically, you know, at that time, the people there, there was a column in that paper about starting a law firm. And most of the people who started, it was more the more traditional model back then, which was you were a partner at a firm, you took two associates and you left and you started a boutique. So my lead off was something like how I started a firm with no clients, no money, and no very little experience. And that they, they printed that. And then eventually, I think I wrote a proposal, there was a, a, a book company, or well, actually, I, I think I started, I, I can't remember, I guess I did start my blog first. I had also, that was also well after. So that was like back in the 90s. I continued practicing by myself. And as I did, I realized that, you know, there were a need for more resources on um, on starting a practice because, again, at that time, there were a couple of courses. They focused on this very traditional type of practice. You didn't have anybody who was working from home or balancing ch- kids and, and running a firm. And so I, at that time, decided to start a blog, which became myshingle.com, which wrote about different ways to start a practice. And it gave a lot of different perspectives at a time when people weren't really talking about it because the internet was still relatively nascent and the book eventually grew out of the blog. So for the first few years of the blog, I mean, I had like five, five readers a day. Um, there really weren't, <laughs> there weren't a lot of people in legal who were interested in it. They didn't understand what the purpose of it was. Um, people didn't know how I would make money. And the thing that kills me is at that time, instead of saying, I'll figure out a way to make money, I was like, oh, it's a labor of love. Terrible words should never be used. But but again, it was it was it was a new time. But my blog was eventually picked up by this woman named Lisa Stone, who worked with the uh, with American Law Media. And so she saw it as having some promise. And it was one of the only blogs written by a woman besides Denise Howell's Bag and Baggage, which was focused on IP. And so she did have a lot of readership because IP people were reading blogs. And so that also started to get it some more national exposure. And then it got 
more visibility over the years. And so it just kind of snowballed. But I, I think the reason it's that, that it has continued to grow is I have a lot of sticking power and I'm still around. I, if you ask when I started the blog, it was going to have its 18th birthday in December. So um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, been, it's been a long, long journey. It's becoming an adult now, the blog. Absolutely. I mean, I followed your blog so closely. I I thought you were superwoman, though. I was always like, how is she doing all these things? She does all these really interesting cases. She takes care of her daughters. You know, she's at her kitchen table writing. Yes. I was just like marveling at you all the time. And so... And now I think about it, you think of all the people in the pandemic. I mean, people have been thrown into that now. And I only hope they've all read every blog article of my shingle. To get up to yes. See. And I know, I mean, in so many ways, I mean, they, they do have it worse because you have, you don't even have the, the child care. You don't even have the school. Right. You don't necessarily have the grandparents who can help you because of the social uh, distancing requirements. So in many ways, and you don't have the, even the freedom to take your kids out to the park, let them run free in the mall. I remember I would let my daughters run around the park and I would sleep on the bench. So, <laughs> so, so it, it, I, I really, I, I do feel for, for parents, for parents who are going through this today. I mean, you have a little more connection through social media, but still at the end of the day, you're still you and your kids doing these long marathon sessions trying to get them to go to school while you're trying to get your work done. So it, it is, it, it, I did have a sense of deja vu. Oh, I bet. I mean, I thought it was a real, I mean, when I looked back on our experience moving with Hurricane Katrina, you know, evacuating, homeschooling my kids and living in this new place. And when this pandemic started, I was like, whoa, I feel like I'm back in rural Georgia again, you know, yes. reliving this kind of, interesting world but um i agree i think it is very hard for moms right now to deal with what they're dealing with i do think people can gain a lot of insight and resourcefulness from somebody like you who has been through it i mean you have watched your children grow from itty bitties all the way i mean past college now right have they both graduated I, I have one more semester on the, the younger one is graduating in May, may not have a, a gra probably will not have a graduation ceremony. I don't care. I'm just glad to be paying the last tuition payments. Absolutely. Girl, yeah. I'm with you on that. We have one more to go through college. We have six children. And so in the number five, join the Marines. So I joke, he's my favorite because he <laughs> saved me all kinds of money. Yes. <laughs> So but, did the youngest just start? No, he's a senior in high school. Oh, my gosh. Just got accepted to his first choice school. So that was very exciting. But it's so weird. He didn't take an SAT, didn't do any of the normal go to college things. And he's a in, little engineer in the making. And But he's off to engineering school. His siblings are kind of not happy at him. They're like, seriously, you didn't even take an SAT? You know, you just they, like... Were they canceled or... They, yeah, they waived them. Most schools have waived all standardized tests because you can't take the test during the right. pandemic. And so every school he was applying to actually waived it, but he only ended up applying to the one school. So, and he just found out he got in, I want to say last week. So he's just like, I'm done. I'm applying nowhere else. I'm good. Like, yes. Okay. Yeah. You do not have a normal college experience <laughs> at all. Well, what can you tell us about, I mean, 
no doubt, I'm sure, even though I did think you were superwoman, and I do think you are the Beyonce of modern law practice, mm. you had to have had a, a few epic fails along the way, either in business, in law, in momming. I mean, do you have any of those that you want to share with us that we can, you know, feel more connected because no doubt we all have them. Yeah, so I mean, I had a lot of experimentation. I mean, even from the beginning, um, I, my first failure came very soon. I, I followed the advice in Jay Foonberg's <laughs> book, which said, oh. you know, have have a party in your building and invite all the people in your building. And I went through my building, I invited everybody, I invited, sent emails, not emails, I guess, invitation. I don't even know how I informed people because there really wasn't, I know I was using email, but a lot of people weren't and contacted a lot of people. And I made all this food by myself in my kitchen. I trucked it down to my office. I had big, huge plates of delicious food and I don't cook very much. And like four or five people showed up and one was my husband, one was my sister. There's, I think it was the, the two of them, the, the guy who did maintenance in the office that I'd worked at before. And so there was just like all this food there. And finally the people from my office had to come in and, and eat it. But I did get to know at least one or two people in that virtual suite that I was sharing, but that was, that was a pretty, a pretty bad fail, I guess. You know, also, I mean, even something with um, with the blog, I don't consider my shingle a failure. But when I started it, it was so early that I couldn't really see a possibility for, you know, for monetizing it. I mean, it, it was I, 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 in some ways I feel like I was very forward looking. I mean, I, I, I went on Elance. I, I actually I still I have the book it's about Elance. It's now oh, called yeah. Upwork, but <laughs> it's you know, I had I had a logo for it and things like that. But I just couldn't at that time see. And I even made a business plan that, you know, had, I guess, like advertising as as a way of funding it. And it's made some revenue over the years. And that's something that I still puzzle with. So I don't consider it a failure, but I don't feel as if it has maybe reached its full potential. I started a trade association, which uh, was a new, another business idea to develop to, you know, to, I, I couldn't, I, the smaller clients that I was targeting didn't have enough money to, uh, to hire me. So I figured we'll put them in a trade association, get them together. And so that, that grew for a while, but I was working with other people and eventually it wound up merging. It became very successful. It had like 55 members. We raised millions of dollars for the, for the ocean energy industry, but we wound up having to merge with another nonprofit because we just could not make it fully sustainable. So, um, and I, I know there are many other things I've exper There are a lot of things I've done sort of experimentally and either not followed through on or just started so early that I couldn't see a path forward for right. it. So, but you know, it's funny because when you look back, you don't, at the time, all these things feel like terrible failures, but when you look back, there's like this, this lens, you know, it kind of, it, it filters a lot of it. And you just realize that it was just a learning experience or it wasn't the worst thing in the world. And you just move on to the, to the next Absolutely. thing. So. I mean, I always say that if I'm not experimenting, I'm dying. I love experimenting. I kind of drive my office a little crazy because yes. I'll be like, I have this great idea. And they're all like, oh, gosh, here she goes again with another one of her great ideas. But I mean, I kind of think that's part of what we as entrepreneurs really do. Don't you just the the constant 
you know, what are we thinking and what, I mean, just being like the visionary of your business, I think that's a lot of experimenting goes on. Yeah, no, I mean, the experimentation is really important and it's, um, you know, it's, it's what drives things and it keeps things interesting. I mean, I love, the thing that I love about the entrepreneurship the best is just the ability to, you know, you can come up with an idea and if you can figure out how to make money from it, that's, that's really all you need. And it's just this creation of something, something tangible materializing out of, out of nothing, which of course is so different from law, which is, you know, built on years of precedent. And sometimes you get lucky and you change the precedent and you create something new, but many times you're just expanding it or you're realigning it. And so that's what I, I love about all of all the law firms that people have started as a result of my blog or my book is that there's all these little entities that have cropped up that just were at one time just ideas. And now there's something, there's something real. So. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think of the entrepreneurship and all that creating something out of nothing is really the same as being a mom. I mean, you end up with these little blobs that you have and you get to experiment and you get to, you know, try things and see how things work and really work to each child's strength. And I find, I found being a mom to really um, engage my experimental side. I mean, you know, I had four biological children, two step and, and, you know, you kind of think, oh, well, the children will be a little similar not at all no it's you wonder (laughs) i'm like wait a minute did they switch y'all at the hospital i know but for the fact they all were like 10 pounds or more that was the only thing that was similar in my family was the size of these blobs that came home the rest (laughs) it was all i mean it was another gumbo i can assure you Yeah, no, you do. You, you, you do learn things. And, and of course, I'm sure before you became a parent, you looked at other parents and you saw a screaming child and you're thinking, oh, I'll never be like that when I'm are even worse. So but I think, I think, I mean, it, it also, I, I know that mothers now also often hold themselves to higher standards. Some of the things that I see moms doing with their kids, man, I would have never, <laughs> never been able to do any of oh, that. Oh, you're asleep on the park bench. <laughs> yes, I know. Exactly. I know that was me. <laughs> I mean, I, I encourage them to take their bikes to the park without me. <laughs> <laughs> that is the greatest story ever. <laughs> I think that, I mean, I think the New Orleans version of that, you know, my kids were young and when we were in New Orleans was you had to be at a swimming pool in New Orleans. I mean, it is too hot. Like it is not at all civil to be either outside of an air conditioner or outside of a pool. So we went to the pool every single day. I mean, everybody belongs to a country club. It's almost like you know, they're not even expensive. Like they practically give away memberships. They don't want, you know, crime in New Orleans. They want people to be happy. So we all go to the pool and every pool has a bar, a very large bar where they serve daiquiris and all these things. And so you would go with your children, you would be able to drink your daiquiri, your children could go up to the bar and get virgin daiquiris. And then it was all, it's just time at the pool. And that is our version of sleeping on a park bench. Yes, (laughs) much nicer version. having the daiquiri or the drink it it was lovely but i mean there were many of us that i mean our friendships were totally 
contingent on, you know, arriving to the pool on March 1st and not leaving until about October 15th. And we would go, I mean, that whole time, all the time. And you could just show up at the pool and half the time, if you didn't want to go, you could just run in, find a friend, be like, I'm dropping my kids with you. You know, and there was always lifeguards. I mean, it was a, a very safe environment for the kids to play. And and the other thing, I mean, this is life as a mom in New Orleans, when I had itty bitty kids, I think Katie, who was my oldest, was probably five, maybe four. I had a lady at the club tell me, because, you know, there I am with all these little kids just stair step. She was like, you must join the swim team. Like, your children must join the swim team. I'm like, they're pretty little. You know, do you see them? And she was like, it is the key to keeping your children out of bars when they're older. She was like, in New Orleans, everyone drinks too young. So if they join the swim team, they have to be at swim lessons at the swim team at 5 a.m. She's like, all swimmers are sober kids in high school. I was like, well, I'm in then. Of course. (laughs) All my kids competitively swim. Wow. Wow. That's great. They all started very early on in their competitive swim career solely this was my solid parenting advice i was relying upon were, were you taking them to the pool at five in the morning or oh yeah absolutely absolutely <laughs> i guess you weren't going to the bar <laughs> no indeed i was right there encouraging their sobriety early on that they would all just be good when they were in high school. The boys did defect from swimming after about middle school. They all went to football. I was not as thrilled with that, but it was a, it's a great sport for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sport. So it's still the same. Did your girls participate in, in sports or music or clubs? So they were, they were not that sporty. In fact, my daughter in where I live, the swim team is taken very seriously. And my, my older daughter joined and she, she, swam for enjoyment and so she would always enter one of these medley races and the kids would finish she'd be on her second lap and just stroking very leisurely and they would already be out of the pool so she she never cared but um it was uh it that I, I don't think they necessarily want her to uh, to be on the team. She was lowering the, the points. They used to like to do. I they did theater stuff. What else? I mean, in in high school, there you know they did. My older daughter did like a lot of you know like the quiz, whatever that quiz show. Oh is. yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, math. they they're they're both math majors, so they you would tutor yeah. kids in math and. That was more of their extracurricular stuff. That's but, um, awesome. Yeah, and, and the theater and the acting stuff and writing. They both liked to um, to write also. So, did either of them ever write for your blog? Did you? Ever- I have been. I am going to show them this video. I have been on them about writing something for the blog or for the book about like my mom raised me while she ran a law firm and I turned out okay. <laughs> I think that would be awesome. Yeah. So I I have been on them and now I'm going to show them that somebody else is on them. <laughs> Absolutely. I recently. Well, it's been a year or so now. My son, one of my sons, wrote a blog for me. He was just doing it. We joked it was his way to earn beer money in college i was like (laughs) i am not giving you cash 
you know, to go play, you need a day job. So he was like, well, can I write blog posts? And I was like, sure, you could do that. And so he is an excellent writer and he was having a lot of fun looking up different issues in family law and things. Well, he started writing, he wrote a blog about being raised by a stepdad and what it was like to have a stepdad in the home. And it was probably, I mean, to me, it's the most poignant, amazing writing and to see how he felt about his stepdad and what it meant to him and how my current husband handled being a stepfather. I mean, it has been, I've had so many people tell me, oh, I read that blog from your son. And I'm like, how cool is that? That, you know, he was able to speak from his heart about something, you know, that he knew and a lot of kids go through, you know, is yeah. Now I'm sure your clients are really interested in that because that's got to be one of the number one fears when you're thinking about remarrying or joining families is how it's going to affect your kids. So that probably gets a lot of hits too. (laughs) It does. It's pretty interesting. Well, what kind of advice do you have for moms now who are dealing with the, this trifecta of being a mom, being a lawyer, having their own firm, and let's just add on the pandemic. We're just going to, you know, jump all in. So, so the first thing is, is you have got to stop beating yourselves up ladies. I mean, every single time I saw today in another group, I was in some woman who has a job at a nonprofit who is, you know, very well liked doing great work there. She has a child who I guess they may close the child care soon. And she's, she's, again, she said she feels like a failure. I don't, uh, you really got to cut yourself a break. You are holding down a job, raising children, taking care of a house, dealing with the fear and anxiety of COVID and a pandemic. I mean, you just really have to let up. So if the house is messy or you just got to let something slide and also just realize, honestly, everything will turn out okay. It's just, you can't, you can't see it right away. So people have, it just, it, it hurts me. It hurts when I see these women saying these things about themselves because it sends out a negative message, especially to law firms or to opposing counsel or to judges, because they start to, when women start saying, I can't manage this, I feel like a failure. I mean, others see that and they think, well, maybe they can't manage it and maybe they can't do it. So instead of that, they should be saying, you know, I'm doing a kick-ass job. I am a rock star. I'm doing all this stuff all at once and, you know, doing a great job of it. So that would be really the first message that I would send to people is to really keep that in mind. And the second thing is, is, you know, there's, there's so much uncertainty right now. We, we don't know what's going to happen. If you, if you have an insight and you have the ability to think ahead and, you know, put together a business plan for, you know, what things will look like in six months, that's great. Go for it. But, you know, if, if you're just getting through each day and you're putting off the planning or things like that, that's, that's fine too. I mean, it's, it's really difficult now when you have so many things going on to really, you know, to plan ahead or to get yourself to do things. Because if it weren't during the pandemic, the advice that I would give to people, especially to moms, is to really view this as an opportunity to grow and not just a place to tread water. I feel like not, I I don't want to say like a mistake. I don't have, I really don't have regrets. I'm not like a person who looks back and regrets things. If anything, it makes, it makes people feel sorry for you. And I don't, I would never want anybody to like to do that. But you know, 
I think that when my daughters were younger, I think there probably were more things I could have done or, you know, been more aggressive or strategic about building a practice instead of just feeling as if I was treading water, waiting for them to get onto the next stage. So I think that, you know, if you see opportunities, go for it and, you know, you'll, you'll figure it out. Things will fall into place. And with the pandemic, it's more difficult. I mean, I would say if, if an opportunity arises or presents itself during the pandemic, go for it and, you know, let things figure themselves out. But at the same time, don't feel badly if you feel like the most you can do is tread water because these are just such unusual and unprecedented period that, you know, if all you can do is kind of just, you know, claw your way to survival, there's there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I, I felt like that, you know, after I, I, I paid for my first daughter's tuition, I paid for it by myself as a single parent. And it was a slog. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, I, you know, made my, you know, was running my firm and generating all this money. And I just like wrote those checks every week. I mean, it was, it was a slog, but you know what, a slog where you get across the finish line is, is just as good as, you know, a clean, a clean race. So um, whatever it takes to go forward is, is what you should do. Oh, that so resonates with me. I mean, and I think your lawyer mom summit you put on is going to be such a start to this movement of women attorneys flipping how they see themselves and flipping the dialogue like you mentioned about instead of us talking about how we're not doing things well I mean we need to own that we are fucking bad ass yes let's just be serious I hate to use those curse words but it is true I mean and we can handle anything and sometimes when i hear it and i see it with like opposing counsel i think to myself dude if i handed over my six kids my law firm and my high conflict co-parenting people that i'm working with you would die in a day i don't think you'd make it one day and yes. we've got to own that power and own our ability to pivot and to be really multi, just contextual, how we are able to deal with things and juggle things. I marvel at so many women. I look at so many women and I'm like, wow, she is wildly amazing. And I have to tell you, I don't feel that way a lot of times about men, but I mean, about a lot of women, I am just like, wow, she's just got it all going on and really doing all the things and authentically, which I just think is so amazing. I mean, and I think your Lawyer Mom Summit really highlighted the possibilities out there. Yeah, that was something I really wanted to put out there because that was the other thing. That's the other thing that really is one of my pet peeves is when the system is set up in a way so that you have lawyers feeling grateful if their employer is accommodating them or feeling that they're lucky to have a job. And it's the other way around. And I think that in addition to women feeling like they own it, it's important for all of us to show the world what they're doing and to make other people aware of it. And I feel like a lot of the other conferences and the whole discussion, the whole dialogue around work-life balance in the law is always what you can do to retain women at big law. I mean, that's that's kind of the, the, the end of the story. And even when we have somebody like Kamala Harris in power, who's a woman who, who didn't necessarily own a law firm, but owned her career, she made very 
distinct career choices to get her to where she is today that were also unconventional choices. She could have easily, you know, gone to do white collar crime at a big law firm in San Francisco, but she chose this path for a reason. But I think even with somebody like her in power, we still have this discussion. We we still think that, you know, until women are partners at big firms, you know, they are not going to have the brass ring or they're not going to have the prestige they need in law. And there's so many women who are doing so many amazing things. And it's just important to to broadcast that. So I was I was glad to have the conference. I was very disappointed that a lot of law schools really didn't have very much interest in it. I didn't really have time to call placement advisors and hound them or or deans, which I am going to start doing it at some point when I am in a rambunctious mood. (laughs) But it really has to start in law school because you're not, I mean, those women who spoke at the conference, people like Ali Lozano, Takora, all the people on your panel, never, I never heard anybody like that in law school. I never saw anybody look like that in law school, never knew that women like that could exist. So oh, definitely not. We, I mean, I don't think they did exist though. Yeah, maybe that's true. When I went to law school, like, I don't know when you went, but I know when I went, it was not like that at all. I mean, and the only job we looked to, you know, I mean, I got a federal clerkship out of law school, which mm. was a big deal, you know, that's and everyone's deal. like, Oh, that's a big deal. And I'll, I mean, we'll have a conversation about that later, whether it was yes. a big deal, but <laughs> I learned a lot of good things from my judge, for sure. He had a great work ethic, and I learned a lot of good things. But then it was all about what big law firm could you go to? And literally, I was like working in my federal clerkship, staying as long as possible so I could pop out my babies on the federal insurance because I knew (laughs) the minute I went to my big law firm of all men where there was no women there, they were going to be like, you want to have a what? Like, what are we supposed to do with that? So when I did get pregnant, with my third child they were all like okay we don't have a policy we don't know about maternity anything (laughs) like it was not really a thing and so it was something that I had to really work through and I mean I realized so early on at that firm I mean this was not the life I wanted as a mom because it was hard you know you were supposed to I mean I had to get in I mean when my two were little I got into work every day at 4 a.m. so that I could leave by 3 p.m. so that I could see my children in that evening evening, like three to eight. Otherwise, I would never see my children. I mean, I was literally going to go when they got up and I was going to come home when they went to bed. And so I changed my schedule so that I could see them. And it was literally like it never occurred to my office, you know, or even to me to think like this should be we should be able to work this out differently. I shouldn't have to get to work every day at 4 a.m., you know, like, yeah. But they didn't have any idea of different. Well, and when I took the bar exam in Louisiana, I mean, and I read stories now and I realize how utterly conditioned we are. I was pregnant when I took my first bar exam in Louisiana. I literally had to be monitored. A lady watched me pee every single time for three days. I could not close the bathroom stall. They had to watch me go to the bathroom pregnant every single time and you know when you're pregnant you have to go to the bathroom a lot oh yes yes, yes. so it's kind of awkward babies (laughs) literally i became good friends with her though you know like she was just as nice as she could be but it was this whole thing (laughs) that i had to go through and now i realize women wouldn't stand for that they would be like oh no i don't think so 
And well, I didn't even think to complain about it. Yeah, yeah, no, I've noticed there are a lot of changes. I even noticed with a lot of the younger people who work in my office as summer clerks, many of them will often ask, when is my lunch break? And they always make a point of taking a lunch break. And so, I, once in a while, I've had law clerks who didn't realize that, yeah, on a day that you have a filing due at five, maybe you do have to skip your lunch break that day. But but generally, I thought, you know, really, why did I never think to ask for a lunch break? Like, it's just never even, it just didn't occur to me. Completely. It's just very, so, so there are, there are things that are changing in my view for the better. I know some people, Absolutely. some lawyers think these other young lawyers are soft or, you know, they're not as hardworking, but that's just ridiculous. It's just a recipe for burnout. So otherwise. Well, I completely agree with you. I have an associate who's been with me the longest and I texted her one morning a few years ago early and I don't know what time it was, but it was probably before eight. It was probably after seven and before eight. Well, she texted me back and said, I would appreciate it if you did not text me, you know, after hours. And initially I was pretty taken aback by that. But then I was like, well, hell yeah, you just tell me when I can text you. I was like, good for you. So I never text her after hours. I mean, obviously, if there was an emergency, I would. But I would never do it. And and I have really appreciated her stand-up way of just, like, standing up for herself, her work-life balance. And, I mean, she has helped me learn a lot as an owner, you know, of what does my staff need and, you know, how can I help my team reach their work-life balance rather than being in that tug-of-war with them you know, over that. And that's been a huge thing is to create policies around work-life balance as opposed to, you know, how sometimes firms are monetizing people bonuses for working harder. I like discourage it. I'm like, I'm going to dock you if you become a workaholic. Like, I want you to hit your goals and then be done. Like, I don't want all this excessive work because to me, if we have that, I need to go hire more people not burn out the ones I have. Right, and, right. And I, I do think it's different than when you and I were young lawyers. I mean, did you have billable requirements as a young lawyer? Yeah, I had, um, I mean, I, I was at the, well, yeah, even when I was a summer associate, uh, we had the billables. And then I graduated in 88. And then I was at the government for like a year and a half or 18 months, 20 months. Yeah, and my firm, we did have, I, I was at, it was a mid-sized firm, so it didn't have, you know, I wasn't doing like 2,000 hour months. And they, towards the end of my tenure there, they were also struggling financially. So they were, it was a situation where the partners were cannibalizing and taking the associates' hours <laughs> from them. But yeah, we were, I was still expected to bill. It must have been like, I don't know, 1,800 or 1,900 hours. And, you know, at that time I didn't have children. I wasn't pregnant, so it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't as, as bad. So, yeah, but. when I was a young associate, we had a 2,400 hour a year requirement and it was brutal. I mean, that I, is brutal. That's that's quite a lot. It was brutal. Yeah. And so when, when I look at our associates now, they're more in like the 1400 a year, you know, and I'm like, wow, that's a big, big difference. And yeah. Yeah. Requirements. But I think we as a a society are understanding more about, I hope, the import of women in both the home and in the workforce. And we can't burn them out in either place. I mean, they need to be at their best in both places, ideally. Right, right. And I think you also, I guess, you know, I, I think with technology, there are different ways that you can manage people's 
time schedules and accommodate the way that they work and figure out ways to sort of piece these schedules together. I mean, I think I mentioned in a blog post, just when I was organizing the Lawyer Mom Owner Summit, I was dealing with incredibly, incredibly busy people. And even at the last minutes, lots of speakers were having justified cancellations, but you didn't have to shut the whole thing down or dock them or yell at them. You just, you, you got, you have a backup plan in place and you would have to assume that, you know, people who've been running firms for a long time would have some sort of backup in place if somebody does have an emergency and also be able to take advantage of people who are work, who, who prefer to work odd hours. So Absolutely. it can be a benefit. <laughs> I love when I can have a team in my office that covers all 24 hours. Like I can have an attorney, a paralegal and a legal administrator, and they all want to work different hours. And we've been virtual for five years. So, I mean, I pretty much roll with, you know, those things. And it makes me so happy. Like in pre-pandemic, if I was traveling, a lot of times I would be like, oh, well, I know so-and-so is up doing whatever now, even though I was on a different time zone, they were on a different time, but I knew they did usually would work late into the night. And it made it where we actually were able to be a lot more efficient and we got more work done because we often were finding ourselves in that 24 hour period. We used to joke like one attorney would say, okay, Elise, I'm signing off. So I expect you're signing on soon. I was like, you know, but it works. And when you're virtual and you use technology, I do think you can be more flexible. Yeah, no. And so those are those those are things. It just when when I see lawyers who aren't really looking at different ways to capitalize on that, it's just it's it's very discouraging because we are in a field where you have the ability. I mean, you're sort of you're confined by what your court dates are by when the court is in session and by deadlines. I, you know, if you have a deadline at five, having somebody working at midnight isn't going to help you. I always like those midnight deadlines because you actually do have a little extra flexibility, but I, you know, I guess not everybody really, people get stuck in their ways of doing something one way and they don't turn it around. That's the other advantage of having children. Your kids are always growing and changing. And so you always have to acclimate yourself to a different stage and to different needs. And so you get used to being accustomed to being nimble. And that's another advantage I think that you have when you're running a firm is to be able to kind of turn on a dime and be able to incorporate new developments or trends as they arise. I mean, I think like if I could give advice to somebody in law school, it is to be nimble. I mean, I think being nimble is a superpower. of being able to handle what gets thrown at you. I mean, even just as we're talking about just law, just practicing law, I mean, I was one of those total like oral argument moot court geek types, you know, and did all those like national competitions. And I didn't ever want to write the brief. I mean, I stunk at that. Everyone's like, just make Elise talk. Don't let her write. (laughs) um, So, but, you know, I was like, this is good. We're working to our strengths here. And I found in all those arguments, and I mostly was involved in appellate kind of things. And I found in all those being nimble was critical because so many times, you know, a judge would throw a question and I would often find my opponents kind of like flat footed, you know, and not thinking about 
how that plays into it or and really not being able to answer it, you know, and always just wanting to come back to whatever their initial argument was. And I found a lot of times if you would roll with the judges and their questions and really dig into what they were trying to ask, you could get the court so much more engaged in your argument and still bring it back to what you needed to say, but you've hooked them all, you know? And so I always found being nimble to be critical. And I think we see it in motherhood, being a lawyer and in being an entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a very important, uh, very important skill. So, yeah, but don't know how you can teach it. I mean, law school doesn't teach you to be nimble. (laughs) I guess maybe you're answering the questions in class, but I, you know, I don't know. I never felt that they were teaching us much about nimbleness. Yeah, I I agree with that. (laughs) You know, and I read an article recently that talked about the Socratic method as being not a great method for women in particular to learn from, that women found it aggressive. And so they would often kind of, you know, maybe step back and shy away a little bit from the Socratic method, which I thought was really interesting to read that somebody had actually studied it. So I had, I, I wrote um, a newspaper column when I was in uh, law school. They, were, they didn't have blogs then, but if they had, I would have I had one. But I think the first article I wrote, I, I remember describing it as the brutal and inhuman Socratic method. And I said, it teaches, it forces people to think, it leads them through the train of thought that you want them to have. And so it really indoctrinates them in a very narrow form of thinking, teasing out the answer that is the right answer. So I, I was very critical of it at, <laughs> too, too, too early. It did not necessarily serve me well in, <laughs> in law school, <laughs> but that's another story. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you joined us today. And it was such an honor to have you on our inaugural Maximum Mom podcast, because really, I mean, you are the trailblazer of this. I mean, Whenever I think of a mom, a lawyer, an entrepreneur, I mean, it is your smiling face that is in my head. And so, I mean, I really, really appreciate you coming on because I think you have so much wisdom in this area. Well, thank you. I'm so glad that you launched this podcast because I can't wait to hear all. You must have a stack of people lined up to to interview. So I was very glad to see that. And, um, you know, I'm glad. I, I guess, is it part of the Maximum Lawyer family of podcasts it is yes i had asked jim and tyson it was something during the pandemic i really was noticing and i've been answering so many questions for people and you know who are now virtual and deciding to go whether they're going back and stuff and i just asked them if they might be willing to allow me to do this and they were so enthusiastic and so supportive and i just think it's a real like need in our community of and i i'm so just so happy to hear you talk about what you did about women and what we're telling ourselves i mean i think that just has got to be one of our biggest focuses is kind of taming our inner you know what (laughs) i won't say that word too can't say it on the air (laughs) well i hope everybody has a wonderful week and i think of motherhood is quite messy so i think of our roles as moms lawyers and entrepreneurs i hope everybody has a messy zealously inspirational week because i feel like that's kind of what we do in all our roles and so and we just have to put it all together in that gumbo and then 
we're good. We're ready for a party. Yes, but you're making me hungry. You're going to have to cook some gumbo if I ever uh, get to meet you in person. <laughs> we learn how to cook it in your RV. <laughs> RV out there, absolutely. We're going to have a party when you come to DC. We can do some tailgating. I think that would be fun. Who knew when you buy an RV, they have TVs on the side? I did not know that. They do. Yeah, you can watch TV outside. So if you're a diehard tailgater, you can sit out there and just watch your game from your TV. So there's an attorney in Alabama that I'm friends with. And, you know, she's a huge Alabama fan. I'm a huge LSU fan. And I was like, okay, absolutely. We're going to have to do some Bama LSU tailgating. Wow. And a TV on the side. I know. I did. I will send you a picture. Yes, <laughs> yes. I have to I have to see it. So. <laughs> well, have a wonderful day. And I hope D.C. kind of stays calm yes. or just joyful. <laughs> yes, joyful is a good way to purchase it. <laughs> Thank you again, Carolyn, and have a wonderful day. Okay, you too. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Maximum Mom Podcast, a production of Maximum Lawyer Media. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. See you next time.